Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves on 855 3CR Community Radio and via podcast. And thanks so much to Sally for another fantastic show of Out of the Pan every Sunday at 12 to 1. So make sure you tune in for Sally's next show next week. Uh, today we're going to do a bit of a two-parter. Um, I'm joined here with a friend of the show and past guest, Christian Freitag. Um, but before we get into a conversation uh, later in the show about transitioning to plant-based diets, uh, we're going to start with an interview that I re- pre-recorded yes, uh, on Friday um, about a New South Wales High Court case decision uh, with Chris Delforce. Today we're going to jump straight into the conversation because um, I think there's going to be it's an it's a relatively complicated um, discussion or there's a few parts to the discussion, and we're joined today by Chris Delforce from Farm Transparency to discuss a recent New South Wales High Court decision which has potential big implications for animals and animal advocacy. Uh, there was a judgment made on the 10th of the of August this year um, that's been working through the court system for over a, over a year and Farm Transparency has been integral to that court case, working for the interests of animals and animal advocates and we'd just like to hear from Chris and Farm Transparency about that case and what it means for animal advocacy. So Chris, can we first start off with um, what is farm transparency? I think a lot of our audience will know, but for those who don't, what is farm transparency? What do you folks do? So we basically focus on the legal standard practices that happen in farms and slaughterhouses across the country. We just try and um, bring those industries that depend on secrecy out into the spotlight, kind of force transparency on them and educate consumers about what they're paying for when they purchase meat, dairy and eggs, or even when they attend a horse or a greyhound race or other kind of industries that, that exploit animals, um, because a lot of this is, is hidden in the dark. And the organisation started under the name Aussie Farms back in 2014. Um, we then changed our name to Farm Transparency Project in mid-2020. So a lot of what we do involves... Um, undercover or covert investigations into these kinds of facilities that that use and exploit animals and um, yeah exposing them to the public in in as big a way as we can yeah and there's some fantastic work that farm transparency has compiled online I'll put a link to the in the show notes for anyone who's interested in visiting the farm transparency website um, and 
Well, an important point I think that you that you made then was that farm transparency is about bringing to light legal practices of yeah. the industry, and this was one of the tensions that maybe we'll talk about in the in the um, court case uh, later. But why do you think we need the work of farm transparency to highlight these legal actions? Because I mean, some people just go, "Well, it's legal, so what does it matter?" I think even though much of what happens is legal, most people who who see it would agree that it's cruel, that it's unacceptably cruel, that the animals are clearly suffering, um, and it's simply not it's simply not necessary. I think if most people knew what was happening behind closed doors, they would not support these industries, and these industries would would fall apart quite quickly. It's only because of this secrecy that is propped up by state and federal governments who keep telling us that animals here in Australia are looked after well, that we've got authorities who will very quickly investigate any claims of cruelty and stamp it out. And that any time there is cruelty to an animal, it's a rogue operator, doesn't represent the industry, that sort of thing. We're not having that conversation about what is actually happening as standard industry practice and the fact that it is incredibly cruel and unjustifiable. And another great point that you make there is standard industry practice. And I think one of the loopholes within um, our, quote, animal welfare, unquote, um, legislation in Australia and, and in states within Australia is that there's certain animal welfare um, regulations that apply to certain animals, but then within industry, basically, if it forms a part of a standard operating procedure, it, basic, it basically becomes legal. You might be able to correct me if I'm, if I'm overstating there, but if it's if it's common and it's standard practice, it's legal. And that includes um, mutilation and really horrible things that are done to animals that cause physical and mental anguish and pain and suffering. Exactly, exactly. So each state has a, a Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act or equivalent legislation, which basically spells out what is cruelty to animals and it's it's what you'd expect it to be an act that causes suffering or harm that isn't necessary basically um, but then they it all explicitly exempt farmed animals or other commercially used animals such as animals used in experimentation um, from those laws and say that as long as you are complying with a code of practice then you cannot be charged with a, a cruelty offence under these laws. And those codes of practice basically exist to permit certain acts of cruelty that the industry depends on, such as mutilation, as you say, such as overcrowding and extreme confinement for long periods. And everything that happens inside a slaughterhouse, essentially, is made legal by this exemption for farmed animals. And this exemption is not based on any kind of um, difference in sentience or capacity to suffer that, that farmed animals have compared to dogs or cats or other uh, companion animals. It's purely their commercial value and the need for industry to be able to get away with these things without having to worry about being hit with, um, with cruelty complaints or charges. And I mean, that's, that's not even to mention that in at least in Victoria, and I think this is very true in other states, that our um, prevention of cruelty in animals legislation doesn't actually amount to much because there's not very many people who are uh, prosecuted under those under those um, laws. It's very difficult. And those who have the powers to do so don't often utilise those powers or have the resources to do so. Um, Absolutely. So on, in terms of um, farm transparency's work, you expose and bring to light and make transparent these 
these cruel and um, and terrible practices that are occurring to animals, um, even though they are legal. Can you identify some examples of where um, showing legal, um, like footage of legal operations, has actually resulted in uh, a backlash from the from the community? Because I think there's a few examples that people might recognise. Um, I think that, yeah, there's many examples. I mean, the whole um, sow stall phase out that the, the pork industry promised back in, I think, 2010 or so um, to phase them out by 2017, that was in response to investigations into sow stalls and footage that came out and um, nothing that was related to us. I wasn't uh, I wasn't doing much back then myself, um, but the work of Animals Australia and, and other organisations certainly brought that to light and um, people were, were outraged. So the industry responded to that by saying we will phase them out. It hasn't happened, of course, but um, there's at least a, fewer sow stalls out there now than there were a long time ago. Um, the maceration of male chicks in the egg industry as well there hasn't been any real progress on that here but certainly in other countries uh, i think germany um has already um phased out that practice or is intending to within a number of years and another country has just come on board with that recently possibly italy um and this is all a result of, of footage coming out because Without that footage, people don't know what's happening and they have no way of, of getting angry about these topics. So, so many cases, it is, it is the footage coming out that, um, that leads to change. Live baiting in the greyhound racing industry is another one, something that has been going on for years now. In this case, actually, that is, that is quite illegal. It already was illegal, but the fact is it was still very commonplace. Um, and you know, trainers would say that if you're not live baiting, you just have no chance of, of winning. Um, so it was something that was completely accepted and happening behind the scenes every day. And it was only when this footage came out and blew up across the country that something happened. Um, and unfortunately, not enough happened. And as far as we know, live baiting could well still be going on. But there was at least a massive inquiry in New South Wales, a temporary ban and a ban in the ACT that has thankfully held up. Um, there's still a lot of work to go in all of these cases, but yeah, it's it's pretty much every time it's the footage coming out. It's not the industry saying, you know, we think what we're doing is wrong and we're gonna we're gonna improve it just because we're we like animals or something like that. It's it's always in response to footage coming out and the public getting getting upset about something they weren't previously aware of, and the industry saying, well, we've got to save face and and do something about it. Yeah, and the, these this footage often is a really big um, discussion point in our political and social history, especially over the last sort of fifteen years. We think about uh, the, the cases that you've um, described, in particular the greyhound racing and live animal exports. I mean, it's the footage that makes such a big impact on people, and other work that you uh, that you lead and are involved in um, films like Dominion and your earlier work, these really change how people think about legal practices and how, yeah. um, and and I suppose that's perhaps why the industry is um, so protective and w wanting to stop people from being able to show these sorts of footage because it really does influence people and how they understand the, the industry. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. They're scared, basically, of this. Yeah. Sort of, they're scared of showing people what they actually do to animals. That's it. I mean, if they have to change the way they do things, it's it's 
I mean, the reason all of these horribly cruel things happen is that it's the most economically efficient way to do things. And if you stop them being able to do that, these industries become much less profitable um, to the point that a lot of these businesses will have to to shut down or they'll have to yeah, shift into new ways of, of making a living and they don't want to have to do that. Um, so they are very protective over these, these cruel practices that they see as essential to their economic success. Which is a great, great um, segue into, um, you know, very being very protective of what they do. What law did the New South Wales bring into um, bring in that that farm transparency had an issue with? What was it that you were um, concerned about? I mean, there have there's been a number of new laws brought in recently. Um, the Biosecurity Act is is worth mentioning um, because that specifically targets activists and, and in all the, the second reading speeches and um, all the media discussion around this this law, it is about directly targeting animal activists who trespass in order to rescue animals from suffering or capture footage and photos to expose that suffering. And it introduces massive fines for, for people who do that. But in this and can particular... You explain, can you explain that just while you're there, could you explain what the Biosecurity um, Act is? So it's basically in New South Wales, and, and we've actually similarly passed uh, legislation here in Victoria quite recently, it allows farming properties to enact a biosecurity plan. And if someone uh, enters that land without um, following that plan, and they have no way of knowing what that plan is, because it's not um, it's not available publicly anywhere. There'll be a sign on the fence saying there is a biosecurity management plan in place. You must comply, but um, you don't know what the contents of that are. And the only way to find out is to talk to the owners of the property and, and find out what procedure they want you to follow. So for people who go in under cover of night to um, find out what's happening and, and expose it, there's no way to, to follow that, that biosecurity plan. Um, and if there is evidence that such a plan has, has been breached, then it results in massive fines for individuals or for organizations. Um, so it's essentially a, an extreme trespass bill specifically targeting instances where people are going onto farms um, without the, the knowledge of the owners. Yeah. And sorry, you were about to, you were going to go into um, the current legislation yes. or the re legislation that's part of this recent judgment. Yes. So um, the interesting thing here, this particular legislation that we challenged, the New South Wales Surveillance Devices Act, it was brought in place in 2007. Um, it updated the, the old Listening Devices Act. And it's actually a, a, a very legitimate law um, for the most part because it's, uh, its focus is on privacy of individuals. It wants to stop things like people putting up hidden cameras in bathrooms or um, secretly recording phone calls without the knowledge of, of the other person on the call and then publishing or communicating the contents of, of that private conversation. It was never intended as a way to stop footage of cruelty coming out. But Starting with with me back in uh, 2015, I was, as far as I know, the first person charged under that law um, for capturing and releasing footage and photographs of what was happening in pig farms and a major pig slaughterhouse, which 
you know, has nothing to do with privacy. In most of the um, instances in which I was charged, there were no workers present. It had nothing to do with personal privacy. Businesses do not have a legal right to privacy. The practices that they uh, used are not covered under privacy laws. So it was things like filming pigs in cages. Um, that was the footage that was that was um, in contention here and, and what I was charged for. And under that law, there's, um, I think, a maximum sentence of five years in prison for either getting the footage in the first place or publishing that footage online. And that extends to media outlets. So if we captured footage of pigs in a cage or chickens in a cage or even um, live animals being used on a, a greyhound um, training track, and we provide that to media. If they publish it, then they, as an organization and the journalists involved, are liable for up to up to five years in prison. And these are issues that are clearly in the public interest, as we've seen from the massive outrage that that happens every time these this kind of thing is exposed. There's no question that it's in the public interest. But unlike similar legislation in other states, the New South Wales Surveillance Devices Act does not have a public interest exemption. It is a blanket prohibition on any kind of material that was obtained and published as a result of trespass, basically. Um, so it's it was while it was never intended as a kind of ag-gag law, it has increasingly been used as that, starting with me. And um, my case went to trial in, in 2017 and fell apart an hour into the trial um, on a technicality, essentially. But we wanted to take it to the high court all the way back then. Um, that was that was our plan, and because it fell apart one hour in, we didn't we didn't have the opportunity to do that. Um, but we've seen in the time since then an increasing reluctance from media outlets to publish anything um, showing animal cruelty from New South Wales because they are aware of this law and they don't want to end up in jail or facing massive fines. So it means that when we get things like uh, ex-racing horses being killed in knackeries, being shot in, in pet food factories, in direct breach of the New South Wales racing rules, um, media outlets don't want to touch that. Even when we've, we've got billionaires like Jerry Harvey, who are massive figures in, in this industry, when they're implicated in this scandal, we still struggle to get any kind of media attention for such a, a massive issue that is clearly in the public interest. And so it's gotten to a point where we're, we're sick of that. You know, we think people have a right to see it. We think journalists have a right to report on this. And this law is is getting in the way. And it was it's, it was never the purpose of this law to do that in the first place. So that's why we challenged it. And an important point there, I think, is, um, yeah, your argument, this this seems to be a very broad law. So if you are, you know, trespassing and you take footage of on on a property where you're trespassing, it's illegal to show that. So you could you could be walking through the bush, not know you're on someone's property, take a photo of a tree. Publishing that photo of a tree is technically illegal. Is that right? Yes. Yep, it's it's totally ridiculous. Well, I, I mean, the the wording in the act is something like um, uh, activity or private conversation, and I guess a tree maybe doesn't quite constitute maybe doesn't an activity, 
but you know you wouldn't think that that showing uh, animals in in cages with no workers around constitutes an activity but apparently mm. it does it's the activity of, of pig farming i guess or animal farming um so it seems incredibly broad it? yes absolutely mm. it is and and uh, some of the dissenting judgments in this in this case so we had four um, of the justices against us and three with us and some of those dissenting judgments who are on our side go into just yeah how, how broad this is and how clearly it is such an overreach um, beyond what it was supposed to be or has any right to be i mean in in law, whenever you have these broad and ambiguous laws is where we get into real trouble and that they Absolutely. can start to be used in this way that you're describing, where they yeah. are no longer really there to protect people or the public interest. They are there. They're, they're working against their, their purpose, I suppose. Yes. Um, and so what was your legal argument against the law? So our position was that the these particular sections of the law that prohibit the publication or communication or the possession of this kind of material in the first place, um, we posited that that is in breach of the implied freedom of political communication in the Australian Constitution, that... Um, it's, so it's not an explicit right that's spelled out in the Constitution, but it's it's been brought up many times um, in, in many different high court cases and, and lower um, that establishes that, yeah, in terms of political or public interest matters, there is a freedom of communication around those matters. It's important that we're able to have open discussions about political matters in this country so that people can have informed debates and make informed decisions when it comes to um, election time. So we argued that such an overreach in this way is, is preventing the ability for consumers to be informed on these really important public interest matters. Um, and, and therefore it was an overreach. So we weren't focusing at all on the collection of footage in the first place. We were just focusing on basically if a media organization receives footage that was captured in that way, should they be prevented from reporting on it if it's in the public interest? Yep. And you mentioned earlier that there was a 5-3 split um, against your... 4-3. Oh, sorry, 4-3 four, four, split against your um, position. And what was the argument of those judges who upheld versus those who dissented? Because I think I saw some media that there was no argument that this stuff was in the interest, in public interest. There was no argument that this is... Um, an important conversation to have. No judgment yeah. sort of said that that's not the case, but um, but they still went against the your position. So most of the instances that we referred to in, in bringing this case, the examples we provided, there were many examples we provided of footage and, and photographs, and most of the those cases, that material was captured either by myself or by someone associated with my organisation on Transparency Project, and we were also the ones who were, were bringing the the case and, and uh, the ones who were publishing that footage. So they decided to, these four justices who voted, not voted, it's not that simple, but who, who sided yeah. against us, yeah. um, basically said that they didn't need to answer the question of what happens when a media outlet who has no involvement in capturing the footage receives it that was the entire point as far as our, uh, we were concerned. Um, but because we weren't, because there wasn't 
a media organization involved in our case, um, there was clear crossover but in, in this case between the people who were gathering the footage and publishing it. They decided they didn't need to answer the question of what happens when a media outlet receives it. So it's not so much that, that we lost, that they said that our argument was wrong. They just said that they don't have to answer it. And, and that's that. So there's a, there's a clear implication that if a media outlet ran this case themselves, they would win because there's, there's no real argument um, against, against it. So, so their problem or their decision was based on the fact that your media organisation, Farm Transparency, was also collecting the data and yes. that data was collected or that those footage that footage was collected through trespass and knowing yes. trespass so if a a media organization who was not involved directly in the collection of the footage ran with this argument you think there might be a, a stronger case or like a, not a stronger case but a more successful case because they'd have to actually ask uh, answer yes. that question about yes. whether the publishing of the footage is in the interest of the public yes and i think if you read between the lines the, the question kind of is answered but it's not it's not officially formally answered but it seems like a, an extremely strong case if if a media outlet other than us took this on the frustrating part is that our website um, provides the ability for anyone to upload footage and photographs. So there are instances, there's plenty of instances where people, uh, where we have no involvement in the collection of the footage. We are just publishing that material, but they still didn't take that into account um, mm. and, and yeah, decided simply to not answer the question. Mm, that is, I imagine that is a frustrating um, position to get to after a year and a bit of um, legal proceedings. And Yeah, imagine... and not to mention all the, the fundraising that we had to do. It's not cheap to run a mm. case in, in the high court. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very disappointing to, to have to say, sorry, all this, all this money that we raised from our generous supporters and we haven't even got an answer to this really important question. One of the really interesting um, things that has come out of this case, one of the justices who cited against us went uh, in his judgment, talked about how the footage and photographs captured in these farms and slaughterhouses across New South Wales depict, in his words, undeniable and shocking cruelty. But he explicitly states that this cruelty is not unlawful. Um, and this is our entire point. And so it's, it's, I think it's extremely valuable to have a High Court justice say so clearly that even though this stuff is lawful, it is clearly cruel and, and shocking and undeniable. Um, that could be a, a powerful basis for some kind of challenge to the validity of these exemptions for, for farmed animals in um, animal welfare legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's those dissenting um, sort of judgments that are really important often. Um, yeah, but... absolutely. They they can, they can often pave the way for, for where the law goes in the future. Mm. Um, and, and absolutely, yeah, again, it is undeniable. I mean, I remember your film before Dominion. I, I keep on forgetting. Lucent. Lucent. Um, I remember going to see Lucent at the, at the um, cinema and it was just so impactful. And I'm not sure if it was that that one, but the things like um, CO2 um, gas chambers for pigs, yes. 
Um, yes. I'm not sure if that footage was in Lucent, but it was yeah, there somewhere. Yeah, was, there was yep. a bit of it that, that I think that was just after we'd captured it for the first time anywhere yep. in the world, I believe, that that, that had been captured. Um, it is just such powerful footage and and just horrifying that we do these things to yeah, to pigs absolutely. and other animals and, and that's something that the industry had been doing for over 20 years and saying was humane and the pigs just gently fall asleep so it's a clear example of what how the industry says one thing and it takes people going in there and getting that footage to to prove it wrong mm. yeah thanks so much for bringing that that point up but i, I suppose um one a positive out of this is that there's you now have a and you could you could correct me here but there's a clearer line of sight to what what might be a successful court case um if it was possible that another another media organization was to run um but what do you think the decision means for animals in new south wales who are in industries of of use and for animal advocates who might have been participating in um, capturing footage and bearing witness of animals in these industries. Um, does this, what does this judgment do or how does it impact um, advocates and animals in New South Wales? I think there's a real risk that it's, it's sending a message to the industry and to the New South Wales government that there is no right to uh, awareness for consumers, that there's no right to transparency and industries uh, are able to continue doing this as secretively as they want to. And um, if anyone tries to come on and, and capture footage, then they will be liable under this act. Or if, if media outlets try and publish it, then without taking this to the High Court themselves, then they will also likely be liable. So I think it's a huge blow uh, against transparency and against consumer awareness. And... Um, yeah, that leads to animals suffering more, animals suffering more secretively. Um, who knows what's going on behind the doors when when activists aren't there to to expose it. Um, I think it's it's also a significant blow for public interest journalism more broadly. This doesn't just relate to to animals, but it's it's yeah, sending the message that that there are some topics even if even if they are in the public interest big business interests will win over them it's, yeah there's a chilling effect yes and, and outside of like as you say outside of animals if someone was exploiting worker abuses or something maybe this could this same sort of argument could be used if if that um if that footage was captured through trespass it's yes it's uh yeah it seems very problematic for people <laughs> but beneficial to companies perhaps absolutely um and and what's next um for farm transparency i know that you're probably decompressing after a very um a very long court case that that takes up a lot of time and and energy um but do you have any plans to pursue these issues further or are you pivoting away from from this particular um legal action I think if we can, if we can get a media outlet on board, then we'll absolutely try and run this case again. Um, I'm not sure exactly how long into the future that might be, um, but we're going to to keep trying or keep assessing different ways that we might be able to run this case again in a way where the question absolutely has to be answered. 
Um, in the meantime, we're going to keep doing what we've always done, which is exp- uh, investigate and expose. And if that is in New South Wales, if that's where things lead us, um, then so be it. We're not going to shy away from letting the public know what's happening just because of this this risk, not just under the Surveillance Devices Act, but under the Biosecurity Act and in the context of greater uh, repression from state governments, from police, for um, social justice activists generally, I'd say. Um, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And if they want to charge us and raid us and fine us and throw us in prison, I mean, this is these are the risks that, that have always been there, that we always are aware of when we, when we do this work. Um, nothing has really changed in that regard. And we just have to, to keep pushing back um, because I think if we throw up our hands and, and give up, then, then they've won and animals have lost and people who care about a better world have, have lost. Um, yeah, we're, we're not going to let this uh, slow us down or stop us. And if people would like to support farm transparency or learn more about um, farm transparency, what's the best way to do that? So uh, head to farmtransparency.org and have a look at the kind of work that we've done on our campaigns page. You'll see a lot of the the kind of uh, major um, investigations that we've done over the years. And if you haven't seen Dominion, um, give it a try, though. Fair warning, it is a difficult film to sit through from what I've heard. Um, And uh, there's a, a donate page on there as well if you want to support our work financially. Um, but if you're not able to do that, even just being able to share some of what we're getting up to um, is is incredibly helpful to us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram as well. And I'd like to plug um, Farm Transparency as well for the listeners. If they do excellent work and they do internationally um, renowned and um, globally reaching work. Tra- Dominion is a is a documentary that has gone all over the world and changed so many hearts and minds. And it's a really important piece of um, piece of media. And the, that's directly coming from tra- farm transparency. So many other organisations rely on the sorts of work that farm transparency and similar organisations do in finding out what is happening to animals in these sites of oppression. So certainly um, if this is something that interests you or you've got the ability to support um, farm transparency, I'd strongly encourage you doing so. Um, and we did a, a couple of months ago, I did a, um, a show that was just listing out the sites of oppression, of sites of violence towards animals that is based on the map um, on farm transparency like a memorial. So if you're up for a, a long a long list of really sort of terrible stats, then have a listen to that. It was a bit cathartic, but it was um, based on the work that farm transparency do. So thank you so much, Chris, for all the work that you do and for pursuing these, these issues both legally and for um, showing us Um, and exposing and and creating transparency around the use of animals in all sorts of industries. Thank you for having me. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari and more. 
The forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narn. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narn. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Freedom of Species and this... You're listening to Freedom of Species and this is Heaven Shall Burn, Voice of the Voiceless.
That Chat, a new show joining the 3CR Radical Radio Wednesday Home Time team at 6pm. That Chat will present the voices of self-advocates with cognitive disabilities. Voice at the Table, That, provides practical information to ensure people with cognitive disabilities have a real and equal voice at the table. Welcome, I'm Warren. I'm a graduate of the Voice at the Table training and presenter of the That Chat podcast. Fatchat presents self-advocates in their own words and voice, showcasing how self-advocates are changing their world. Joining the 3CR Wednesday Hometime family from the 24th of August at 6pm and the 4th Wednesday of every month after that. 3CR, the voice of your community. Thanks for tuning in to 3CR Community Powered Radio here on 855am and or on podcast. Um... We've just listened to a recording uh, that I did earlier this week with Chris Delforce talking about um, the High Court decision in New South Wales about the Surveillance Act and the um, the issues there. And thanks, Chris, for coming on and, and making the time to, to chat. Um, now we've got a little bit more time before the end of the show, and Christian and I were just going to discuss a few things that have come out in this past month, one of which is um, a recent paper that was published in The Lancet, Planetary Health, which is quite a good journal, and the paper's titled Ethical and Economic Implications of the Adoption of Novel Plant-Based Beef Substitutes in the USA, a General Equilibrium Modelling Study. The lead author was um, Dr. Mason DeCruz, I think, doctor, um, that's their last name, and there was a bunch of other um, authors as well from Cornell University and other places. So the study authors highlighted that previous research in this space around dietary shifts, um, those investigating the impacts of dietary shifts, uh, often investigate different metrics um, like health or environmental um, metrics or the number of animals used. However, they identified a gap in the literature uh, because plenty of these studies haven't investigated the whole food system. So what happens in if you shift diets um, to all of these things at the same time? Uh, And they also noticed that there wasn't really much of a discussion of the ethical implications of what happens if you shifted diets. So the authors conducted an analysis of multiple impacts um, of including more plant-based beef alternatives in U.S. diets and specifically included a multiple-perspective ethical assessment. And what I found interesting, interesting was that the, uh, they included four ethical perspectives in their analysis, which included um, what are the potential impacts on planetary boundaries, animal welfare, economic and livelihoods, or the economy and livelihoods, and health. And they modelled a shift in um, substituting up to 10% of, or 10%, 30%, or 60% um, cow meat and shifting that into plant based alternatives. Um, and it was an interesting study because they found that uh, economically, that it was, looks like it's almost a neutral impact. So there doesn't seem to be, uh, in this case anyway, where they're shifting to um, plant-based from from cow meat production, uh, that there's much of a economic impact. The, the um, 
economic benefits will be gained. What what's lost in the um, in the animal agricultural industry will be picked up in the plant based um, meats industry. Um, they also found that there's a significant greenhouse gases um, reduction, which is part of the planetary boundaries, and that's clear. We've seen that time and time again. Uh, but they also discussed these other um, these other points around animal welfare, and I wanted to mention their what they suggested in animal welfare, which I think is an important thing for us to consider, is that they they suggested that if there's fewer number of um, cows being used for meat production, for their flesh, it may increase the number of other animals being um, grown, so pigs or chickens. And we've seen this argument before as well, um, that it's a there's a utilitarian argument that um, by reducing cow flesh production of cows, you actually increase the total number of sentient beings, say chickens or pigs, because there's they're smaller, less of less. You get less um, flesh off them, so you would produce more individuals. And that this actually is a net negative animal welfare issue. Um, Christian, what are you? What do you have? What are your thoughts on that point? It's a bit of a fallacious argument because obviously you're treating it as though you have to make up that disparity with other animals. Yeah. When obviously the entire point of this is that you don't have to, and if you're going to be trying to increase um, alternative options, then it would just make sense to provide or make up for that supposed gap in terms of um, source of protein for people um, through plants. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think I mentioned yeah, that study was primarily looking at beef um, or cow flesh as the um, primary um, thing they were looking at. But yeah, obviously you would be looking at all, all of the different um, parts of animal agriculture and yeah, that's not just a one yep. or the other. It's all, all. And and this is this is a point about research and science. Is um, it's often a um, a simplistic model of reality. So if we were getting to a point where we were able to replace sixty percent of cows being used for food with plant based um, meats, then you would imagine that that's also happening in other animal meat production yeah, exactly. um, systems. So, yeah, I think but it, it's just part of... They can't. They couldn't do all of those systems, so they did it within the context of just shifting um, yep. people away from, from cows, and so they identified this potential issue. Another issue which I think is really important that they um, pointed out in relation to the ethical implications on the economy and livelihoods part, um, so... They identified two different points that I think are really important, and we we know we know of these we know of these, but it's important it's important that it's being done in a research article and that's being directly considered in in the literature. Um, and one was that the beef sector would contract substantially, and reductions in producer prices could reduce profitability of the sector, and. Um, there would be wages, though labour shifts from um, contracting sectors to expanding sectors. So they, mm. they think that their labour shifts um, that you lose in, say, cow production could be replaced um, in plant-based meat production. They also had a figure for the number of um, 
jobs that were possibly lost from the um from the the cow based agricultural mm. system the beef value chains is what they call <laughs> them which is a little bit um re- reducing the uh, cows in that situation but they say that um it could challenge the livelihoods of more than 1.5 million people currently employed in the system and this is something that we've talked about on the show before and in different contexts this is similar to the fossil fuel industries where we've been talking about for decades that we need to shift out of that industry, but we get huge pushback because of jobs, jobs, jobs. We're losing jobs. Um, some people are gaining lots of jobs, but other people are losing, losing yep. jobs. Um, and I think that we are heading down, well, there's the potential that we head down a, a similar social issue in regards to the animal agriculture sector if we don't properly... Um, make up for the jobs that might be lost in animal using industries. Yeah, yeah. I think there's like there's a really good quote right at the end of there's a um article on Veg News about this paper. There's a quote from I think it's Tyler Whitley, who's the director of Mercy for Animals, which runs a um they call it a transformation, which is a transformation project, um obviously helping for um transitioning. Um of farms, and the quote is, "Farmers will continue to farm; they'll just earn a living from raising plants." And I think that's quite important to realise that it's not a all or nothing like these. Technically, yes, there's a job that might be lost from a animal agricultural industry, but that means there's potentially for a new job in a new industry. Um, technology, culture, all these things are always in a constant state of flux. Things change, um, and if a job is no longer morally or ethically tenable and there's an opportunity elsewhere um, and there is actually a tangible way to transition people across then i think that's the important thing is that if you've got a practical way of moving people across to new industries then that's opportunity as well yeah um, it's not like people are being thrown completely out of um opportunity here yeah. And I was I was alerted to this article through VegNews.com. Uh, they wrote an art, a, a piece on it a couple of weeks ago, and they also pointed to a few really interesting advocacy um, toolkits that are out there uh, and groups. So there's um, one that's called Brand New Life, and they support workers struggling to transition out of animal ag into other um, possible paths of employment, which is really great to see. And then there's also the Farmer Toolkit, and that's farmertoolkit.org, and they do something similar where they're um, trying to uh, help people guide farmers and um, to transition to plant-focused operations. And I think that as animal advocates um, and as an animal rights movement, um, this is a really exciting uh, direction for our advocacy to be moving, that we even see a possibility for a transition away from um, animal agriculture is something that perhaps was maybe spoken about, but it wasn't as clear a path even yep. a decade ago or two decades ago. And it's exciting to see these sorts of things. So have a look around if there's people mm. in your local area who might be um, interested in starting to do this sort of tran- thinking about this transitions work. There might be ways to um, to use these farmer toolkits or the other project, um, Brand New Brave New Life, and that's BraveNewLife.org, and see how it 
how it might work in your local context with farmers in your um, in your region. Yep. I think the, the great thing is that you can see that it's moving away from just being theoretical frameworks now to actually this is a way you can actually move into plant-based farming. Yep. yep. And speaking of alternatives, um, Cellular Agriculture Australia, which is a charity based here in Australia who try to promote and connect um, industry and academics around uh, cultured meat or lab-based meat or cellular agriculture um, and precision fermentation, they've just... Uh, released their first online course in cellular agriculture and it comprises six modules. Um, it's a free course uh, and it has been designed for students to uh, up to professionals um, to build a base knowledge and fundamentals around merging in industry of cellular agriculture and precision fermentation. Um, so if you're interested, definitely check out Cellular Agriculture Australia um, and I think it's cellagaustralia.org um, and you can find that six-part six course, free course. I had a quick look this morning and it looks really cool um, to give you a bit of an idea of, of where this industry is going and what the potential are, is because um, I think that is going to be part of that discussion of transition. And finally, there is a... Um, so Faunalytics is a great organisation online and who work all over the place um, trying to show you the latest research that's related to animals and animal and useful in animal ad advocacy and activism. Um, they're holding a or hosting a remote symposium for animal advocates called Fauna Connections on September the 8th, 2022. So it's a couple of weeks away. Um, and if you're interested, jump on Faunalytics and you'll, you'll see pretty clearly on their page a... Um, registration link for Fauna Connections. Uh, it's bringing academics, um, scientists and social and behavioural scientists together um, to talk about their original research that discuss the real-life implications and recommendations for animal advocates. So, and just a... a, a uh, I'll be presenting a presentation to that um, <coughs> all about... Um, uh, animal use in r research and how we can collect some data on that and try to make it more transparent. So, yeah, check that out if you're interested. Um, we'll be back next week at 1pm. We're here every every Sunday. So tune in on 8.55am in Melbourne or we're streamed live via the 3CR website or you can find us in any of your favourite podcasts. Um, and thanks for joining us this week, Christian. No worries. Happy to be here. And uh, stay tuned for rotations. I'm just going to play another song that on the way out. This is Bloody Wood Yard.
and now more than ever You're never gonna be lost Your fire burns beneath the frost An empire built between my thoughts Crisscrossed across the line that can't be crossed A million memories in this melody Singing to me Smile, this is the way it's meant to be listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.